0: You're listening to Nine Plus, a research podcast from Waterford Institute of Technology. Hello and welcome to the Nine Plus podcast, named as such because it's concerned with activities from level nine up, research at postgraduate doctorate and postdoctorate level. My name is Rob O'Connor. We're tying this episode in with events around International Women's Day, and I'm speaking with three female researchers, each of whom is nearing the end of their PhD journey at WIT. And they're due to submit their theses later this year. That's 2022, in case you're listening sometime in the future. On the panel are Ashley McGrath, Madhuri Dadamudi and Orla Hayes, each working across different disciplines. The three of them briefly described their research work and told the story of how they ended up where they are professionally today. Hint, there's lots of unexpected left-hand turns along the road. They also spoke about some of the issues affecting female researchers and offered advice for those coming behind them. As is customary, we began the chat with the women introducing themselves and describing the work that they do.
1: So I'm Ashley McGrath, and I am in my final um, year, and I hope to submit in June. Fingers crossed! But my research is around uh, men's health. Uh, specifically, I work with the Irish Men's Sheds Association, and um, we try to uh, design and implement programs that can engage men um, in the men's sheds themselves. So, for anyone who's not familiar with the men's sheds, they're community-based grassroots organisations where men just come together to, uh, I suppose. Get a sense of purpose you know and socialise and so on. So um, I suppose my research has two levels, it's around identifying what works best for men, so working very closely with them in the sheds. Um, and then also looking at it from an implementation science lens. So we're trying to promote the systematic uptake of the programme which is called Sheds for Life uh, in the sheds. Because, um, you know, often when we're trying to translate research into the real world, there's a lot of contextual things that happen. So we try to get that done from the outset. So that's a brief snapshot,
0: really. Uh, Maturi, could you introduce yourself and describe your work?
2: Yeah, thank you. I'm Madhuri. I'm from India and I'm in final year of my PhD and I'm working on drug delivery to the eye. So usually back of the eye diseases such as age-related macular degeneration or diabetic retinopathy are being treated using intravitreal injections. So where the injection is given into the eye uh, to deliver the drug to the site of the action. So we are trying to replace these eye injections with the topical formulation. So a topical formulation is something which can be applied on the eye. It is a needleless and patient-friendly treatment option. So our eye is designed in such a way that it it restricts the entry of foreign bodies. In the same way, it restricts the entry of drugs so the drug can't pass from front of the eye to the back of the eye. So I'm trying to design a nanoparticle where we incorporate the drug in it and it has a potential to pass from front to the back of the eye. So basically, we are working on patient friendly treatment options.
0: Wow. And I can can imagine, I I have no idea about this, but obviously injecting into the eye is, is clearly very invasive. So it's, this, it's
2: invasive, yeah. painful, and it is associated with serious side effects such as retinal detachment. And also, uh, it, is, it is very painful for patients to recover from those injections. And according to recent survey, one in four patients are not coming for the follow-up injections. So, mostly they're ending up uh, losing their vision. So, I'm particularly concentrated on age-related macular degeneration, where people over 50 uh, lost their central vision. Wow. Yeah.
0: And Orla, if we can go to yourself, we introduce yourself and the work that you're doing.
3: Perfect. Um, I'm Orla Hayes. I'm from here in Watford. And um, I'm in, like the ladies, I'm in my final year of my PhD. I'm hoping to again submit in June. Um, So my work looks at data for businesses. And when I tell people that I'm, I'm talking about data, they kind of get afraid and they're like, oh no, a new Cambridge Analytica. <laughs> but in reality, what I'm looking at is I'm looking at how small businesses in particular can use the information that's available to them to make better marketing campaigns. So I'm particularly interested in a concept called the Omnichannel, which is kind of a new marketing strategy um, or strategic incarnation where like we're concentrating on online and offline channels. We're looking mm. at how we can harness the data from online, harness the data from offline, and how we can make like better marketing campaigns across the board for um, not just the business themselves, but to enhance customer experiences. So yeah, that's my research in a, in a, in a nutshell.
0: <laughs> Excellent. Now, so quick question. Do you know each other prior to this conversation? Have you met?
3: We've met
1: briefly, but we don't really know. I think COVID got in the way of a lot of that, Rob, too, because we were all working from home for so yeah. long. So
0: I can right, so I can imagine somebody working on on a PhD or, or or masters or whatever. It's hard at the best of times. It must have been particularly difficult actually during COVID. Did 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 you feel kind of cut off from 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 the community, Ashley?
1: Um, yeah, I think it was. You know, I suppose with me, I was I was working with the men's sheds as well, so I had a yeah. little bit of support there um, in terms of the staff, but. It is. It's a really lonely road when you're doing a postgrad, I think, and people get it. And even though the projects are so, as you can hear, so different, mm. they understand, I suppose, how isolating it can be and all the challenges. So it's lovely to have a sounding board. So even those impromptu coffees and things where you can go and just
2: vent about it all, you know, you would definitely miss that. Absolutely. Yeah.
0: And have it for yourself, Madhuri?
2: Yeah, for me, having a toddler at home and me and my husband both working uh, online, it's really challenging for us at the beginning. But then we slowly got used to the schedule and managed. But my lab work got affected because I'm a science based uh, researcher. So most of my work is in lab, but uh, I have finished my transfer thesis. So that's a good thing. Okay. And Orla, how about yourself?
3: I suppose I was one of those people up in the office trying to get people to like go on Zoom calls with me being like, fun guys, let's have a cup of coffee. It'll be great (laughs) fun. Um, But in reality, like I started my data collection the day that everything shut up. So literally it was me trying to get interviews. So I was supposed to do paired interviews. So I was supposed to do interviews with customers and I was supposed to do interviews with marketing managers. So it ended up that I couldn't get the type of interviews that I wanted to get. So I had to completely change that. And then it was just emailing people being like, hey, I'm Orla, do you want to talk about data on Zoom? Mm -hmm. (laughs) Whereas you can imagine like once people see that and people are already panicking about trying to keep their small businesses afloat, Mm -hmm. that they didn't want to talk about it. So uh, I ended up thinking that it was going to take like three, four months to collect my data and it took a year and a half. So, yeah, it, it was a bit of a challenge, definitely, 100%. Like,
0: I can see the other two of you nodding, as in like, you, this extended data collection is obviously a, a repeated pattern, perhaps.
1: Um, Well, for me, what happened was, I suppose, I was lucky that I was able to collect a lot of my data at the beginning. So I spent a lot of time in the men's sheds. It was Mm. almost kind of ethnographical. I was just with them all the time. So I got loads of data, but I was following them up up to a year and then COVID hit and all the sheds closed. And actually what was the the hardest part of that was seeing the impact that it had on the men. I was able to follow up with them, but they lost their shed. And we had already implemented a health and wellbeing program and they had uh, gotten so much from Sheds for Life, which is what the program is called. Um, but a lot of that then reverted back because the men who were going there because they were lonely and isolated were even more isolated. And it was just, yeah, a bit crap really, I yeah. don't know how else to say it. So uh, that was hard.
0: Well, let, let's ask about where your, each of your individual motivations came from and how you ended up where you are today. So, Nick, you're talking about men's sheds. So why don't we just start with that one? How did you end up working on a PhD around men's sheds? And I said, no, this is a big question. I, do not, I know that. <laughs> yeah.
1: <laughs> yeah, so I suppose I had been doing my um, undergrad in public health, health promotion and... Um, I was interested...
0: You, you did that
1: in WIT, was I it? did that in yeah. WIT, yeah. And I was really interested in the gender-specific health promotion stuff and kind of around gender equality and, you know, understanding that, I suppose, it's, it shouldn't be a, a, an us and them, like women and versus men. It should be that we should be trying to balance the scales for both sides. Yeah. And I suppose understanding the differences, like, why are men... Not able to talk as openly as women about how they are and I do think that that narrative is changing but um, I was interested also knowing there was complicated men in my own life you know and um, so an opportunity came up for me in my final year to do my thesis um, in evaluating a men's health program that was actually running in Clamnell. And I spent a lot of time down there and I really, really loved that. And so it just had worked really well and I had built a really nice relationship with these men and I had been doing that with uh, it was Neve Murphy and Noel Richardson, uh, who you're familiar with. And uh, so then this opportunity came up that they were interested in Sheds for Life was a program that was kind of in embryonic stage, I suppose, you know, and it was about wanting to advance that and what we needed to do. So I, I wrote um, a proposal to the Irish Research Council, who have been fantastic. And uh, yeah, that was successful. So Neve and Noel guided me with that and we it was funded. So we got four years funding and I said, hey, like, I'm going to go for this. So that was really it. And uh, I was always really fond of the Men's Sheds. So I was delighted then to be able to start that process, you know.
0: So it'd be fair to say that something that happened in your final year of your undergrad directly impacted your your decision to carry on with postgraduate work and and the specific project that that you're working with, yeah?
1: Absolutely, it was kind of a snowball thing really, Mm -hmm. you know, and that's one thing I think was really important that I would say to anyone who's interested in research, I might be jumping ahead a bit, but get involved in things because you just don't know yeah. You know, something might might seem so inconsequential or small, but it can absolutely blow up then from there, you know.
0: And OK, so Madhuri, how did you end up where you are? OK, so you said you're originally from India. How did you end up here in Waterford? What attracted you to WIT?
2: Yeah, actually since my uh, school days, I'm fascinated with the concepts of science and I also used to discuss with my sister who is now a cardiologist about medicines and how they work in our body and also uh, I'm more interested in pharmaceutical sciences and I have chosen that subject as my undergrad and after finishing my uh, undergrad, I have motivated more towards research and moved to UK for my master's per research where I worked on oral delivery of insulin. Actually, my grandmom used to have diabetes, she used to take regular insulin injections, So I'm very personally connected to that project and I have written my own research proposal and applied for the funding which I got in Kingston University. So I worked on oral delivery of insulin like Patient uh, friendly treatment options for diabetes. Mm -hmm. And then I got married and I got a kid, but that didn't stop me from my interest towards research. And then I moved back to India after my master's by research. Then I thought it's time to apply for a PhD. And I have seen a WIT funded project in findiphd.com and I applied for it and I got it. That's the first project I applied and I got it. I'm very happy for that. And this is also very related to my previous project, like working on patient friendly treatment options. Because now people are suffering, uh, like people aged over 50, they are having painful treatment options. So we really need to work on those. So even with advancements in science, they don't have uh, topical formulations. So they have been taking intravitreal injections and they're suffering. And uh, AMD is the leading cause of blindness. So it really moved me. So uh, I I moved with my family to Ireland when my daughter is eight months. Now she's four. So uh, I think uh, at the beginning, it is very challenging finding childcare and the expenses. And we moved here and my husband don't have a job when we moved here. And slowly he got a job here and we joined her in a child support. And so there is a lot of support available. I think it's possible. So if we think we can do, we will.
0: Yeah, that, yeah. But that I'm sure that was that was very difficult moving to a new country yep. small child that's yep. look small child is difficult at the best of times yep. for my moving to a new country and then also engaging in this you know PhD work mm-hmm. uh, and and it's not trivial what you're describing so I can understand the the yep. challenges that might have been there yeah yep. yeah I mean and how did right, I hate to talk about covid but so you're here what just a little over 3 years
2: Yeah, I'm here since 2018. Okay. Uh, yeah.
0: Oh, okay, so so you, did you have a support network in place when all of this kicked off in May of
2: 2020? No. Okay. Uh because there's no childcare during COVID time. Yeah. So we had to manage with her, but but my supervisor is very supportive, so I used to adjust my timings according to my husband's work schedule and as it is work from home, it added uh, it it is beneficial for me because I can take care of her and also work and we both used to figure out Timings and etc. Yeah.
0: yeah. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> I take, if I was wearing a hat, I'd take it off to you. Um, Orla, uh, so the same question. So where are you coming from? How, how, so you said you're originally from Waterford, are you? So did you study in WIT?
3: I did, yeah. So I suppose my um, route, the PhD life is a bit odd. Um, in fifth and sixth year, I decided that I was going to leave school and not even do my leaving cert. OK. So I had a horrible experience of just terrible anxiety, um, a lot of bullying, when I was in secondary school and I decided no. Um, when I finally did my Leaving Cert, I had a brilliant teacher in the Mercy Secondary School and she encouraged me, OK, do your Leaving Cert. And then I was like, I'm going to join the guards. That was my first option. I signed up, went to the, went to the went went into the station, yeah. did all my forms, did all my tests. I was, I was going to be a guard. But then I was like, I'm going to wait a few months and go into the next intake. Mm. And at that time I was um, strapped for cash. Uh, I said, I'll go and work in a random shop in town. And my manager happened to be an ex-manager, an ex-marketing manager from Cadbury's. Okay. And he gave me so much responsibility. He allowed me to work with all the merchandisers. He allowed, allowed me to do all the ordering. He allowed me to work with Musgrave's and that kind of thing. And basically in the space of like six months, I fell in love with business and marketing <laughs> and it was so strange. And literally I was like, okay, I'm going to do my CEO again. I'm going to go and I'm going to join marketing. Um, and I, I absolutely adored it. I did my undergrad here, marketing, advertising and digital media, which is now marketing and marketing. Um, uh, online media. But yeah, so when I got to the final year in my undergrad, I decided that I didn't want to leave education. <laughs> I decided I was enjoying it too much. Um, so I jokingly made an offhand comment about how oh, I'm going to be a doctor someday. And then my research centre, RICON, ended up having a position for, an, for a PhD student. And they said, hey, do you want to apply? Do you want to put together a proposal? And I was like, brilliant. I Absolutely would love to. And at the time I was working in a small business here in Monfort. Um, It was me doing the marketing for 35 different territories around the world. And I got this idea from working there that like there was issues using data. There was issues using multiple marketing channels, particularly for like resource strapped um, small businesses that have maybe like no budget or maybe just one marketing manager trying to deal with everything. Mm. And that became my PhD. (laughs) And nine years later, I'm still here and (laughs) with.
0: I know, this place is like, it's like the mafia. You think you're out and pulls you back in. So Uh, buy in, (laughs) buy out. (laughs) (laughs) Wow, okay. So again, there's there's three very distinct stories there, but I mean, a common thread. Now, this is just a a, a glib observation is that the the three of you obviously developed a a passion and there's a personal connection to each of your stories. Uh, So is that... How, how important is that personal connection to research is probably my question.
3: Oh, massively. I think if you're going to dedicate four or five years of your life to a project, you have to do something that, not even that you like, you love. Because mm-hmm. I've seen people come in and do two years and then cut off at a master's because they're like, I just can't spend another two years of my life studying this. They either got funding for a project that they don't enjoy or they took up a subject that they were like, oh, I loved it years ago but I have no interest in carrying it out now. Mm. Um, So I think you have to have that like inner curiosity, that inner passion for something to actually spend all those hours a week researching and talking to people about it and writing papers on it and investigating your particular subject.
0: Uh, Majori, would you agree with that?
2: Yeah, I think if we have a personal connection, it motivates us more. And also I think, uh, as I'm from medical background, if we read about how patients are suffering so how our project is applicable to them will be more motivated so we need to uh, f- like look into bright future so how this research in future gets into place like how it helps how how it improves the well-being of people so that motivates me more i sometimes read about patients experiences and attend some patient related conferences where the people who suffer from the disease uh, i'm working on share their experiences and how their personal life is getting affected that also motivates me a lot mm, yeah.
0: Yeah. and like Ashley. So you're working with men's sheds and clearly there's a lot of emotional issues there. I'm sure you've experienced uh, working with people in distress and I'm not looking for details about that. But it it must be satisfying is maybe the word that I'm looking for to work with something that will directly affect and help people in a positive way.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Like I, I suppose I did never envisioned when I started out that I'd work in men's health. It just seems, you know yeah. but um yeah, absolutely. I think that there's a real sense of reward is probably what I would say when you see that it, it is having a direct impact. Um and in the same in the same breath with that, it can become quite stressful when things aren't going right, like with COVID and that, that you you, you can't help but get pulled into this stuff, you know, that you really start to fall in love with the whole thing when you see the impact that it's having firsthand, um, you know, and seeing men talk about their mental health. Like these are older, more traditional men that probably never would have even considered what the concept of mental health even meant, you know. Um, so absolutely, there's a huge sense of reward in it and it does drive you on when you can remind yourself of that. Um, and there are times that you absolutely hate, hate it too, you know, that it can be a, can be a long road. It's, it's a roller coaster, I think. Uh, the leaders would probably agree with me. So you've got lots of ups and downs.
0: My next question is about what's your day-to-day like? But I'm not even sure if that's a fair question because maybe there is no day-to-day. You're shaking your head, nodding your head. Is is, is there a day-to-day? Madhuri, do you have
2: um actually my day-to-day works like uh, some part of time i devote to see the advancements in my field obviously like what is going on out there because i want to make sure that i'm doing something novel which adds to the science database and and then i'll go and start my lab work and sometimes i'll have a long day experiments like 12 hour time point and all some days i have short experiments where i'll get time to write about the work i have done and all that's Mm. all yeah. And when I get back home, I won't have any time to uh, spend time on my work because I'll be busy with my daughter. Yeah, yeah, so enough. I'll make sure I'll utilise my time here in college. And Orla,
0: yeah. do you have a day to day?
2: No, <laughs> oh, <okay. laughs> I, think
3: I, I think I tell like when people start in our office, we have a shared office in the library. And when people start and they're always like, oh, asking for like starter advice or early advice. And I'm like, your PhD can do, go from zero to 90. You can have weeks where you literally sit at that table and you're just staring at a page for hours on end and you're, nothing's getting done. You're panicking. You just can't find the motivation. And then you have weeks when you're at 90 percent, like 99 percent as well sometimes <laughs> when you're panicking about papers and stuff like that. But it can literally go from having, oh, I'm just doing reading some papers to I'm reading papers, I'm writing, I'm preparing for a class, I'm preparing for a conference. Um, so that's what I love about it as well, though. <laughs> it's um, No day's the same. Mm. No two weeks will ever look the exact same. You're always meeting new people, talking to new people, learning about new things, um, doing new things, learning yeah. new skills. So yeah.
0: And and with your research around sorry the the om- omni channel marketing if I'm making a bags of it please correctly, like are you dealing directly with small business owners and and are they testing something that you're trying?
3: So entirely my first the research that I'm doing at the moment I'm looking at I was. The, Interviewing marketing managers. So I was really digging into what's actually going on in industry, how small businesses are actually using their data, how they're creating marketing campaigns. So I interviewed um, small businesses across Ireland about their experiences with using data, their experiences with using different marketing strategies how to use online channels, how to use offline channels.
0: And, and would these businesses have been in any particular field?
3: No. So entirely, I wanted to just look at one industry. I was going to just do pharmaceuticals because we have a lot of pharmaceutical companies here in Warford. But instead, I decided to make it a bit more widely applicable to different industries. So I interviewed every everyone from People creating VR um, experiences to auctioneers, okay. literally a little bit of absolutely everything. I think it, it was it was really really interesting because I got a huge range of like experiences. So I'm hopeful that it it cuts into like good and interesting data. The yeah. fact that there's such a wide range.
0: And Ashley, day to day, is does it exist?
1: It doesn't, Rob, and, and the thing that I love about that's what I love about it, I should say, it's just I'm not a fan of monotony <laughs> and routine, so while it's challenging, it's, it's 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 exciting. You'll never be doing the same thing twice, you know what I mean? So towards the end, it can get a little bit intense. I, we're all probably in the same boat now where we're trying to write furiously <laughs> to get to the finish line. But um, it was so exciting being out on the road, you could be out doing data collection one day, and then even analysing the data, which can seem so boring, actually gets quite <laughs> exciting. So the nerve, And you definitely comes out in force, so no, no day to day as such. It's always a bit, uh... yeah, but it's it's the excitement of it.
0: So is Neve your supervisor?
1: Neve is my supervisor. So so
0: this is Neve Murphy, and she was a a guest on the podcast a couple of previous episodes ago. So go listen to that because she's great. Um, Neve mentioned a thing, and I'm gonna get make. I can't remember the name she put on it, but the concept was it's about the intangible work of research. So it's this kind of mediation or being this kind of connective tissue that you don't see. And it's it's very hard to quantify. So in, in the case here, you've just talked about driving around. So I'm sure you're driving up and down to men's sheds and you're talking to people which may not necessarily you can't put that directly into a, a spreadsheet. You know, and I'm sure it's the same for if you're talking to small businesses all around the country. And, and if you're reading papers and, and you know, a 12 hour experiment in the three, you know, that's it's, it's very hard to quantify many of these things. So, I mean, how 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 do you feel about that? You know, I know that's a very broad question, you know, but what, what are your thoughts on that idea of the the intangible aspects of research and what you're doing?
1: Well, I think it's something they're really it's really important. And I suppose from my own perspective with the implementation science, it's trying to capture that as well so that people can replicate research. And I think that's what's really important that, you know, often on paper, I could describe Sheds for Life as just being this 10 week programme that ran but all of the stuff that went on behind that so we spent literally months out in the sheds trying to build relationships which was so important because the trust piece because it's a tightly knit environment you know and there's so much potential in the sheds and I I feel like I need to say that too that I'd never want to make any of those men feel labelled or stigmatised they're very capable you know and they've got a whole range of expertise but spending a lot of time is really important so that they can understand that it's to help them and that they're pioneers of this you know and uh, so there is there's a whole lot of stuff that goes on and I, I am trying to capture that in my research now so that other people can maybe replicate that and learn from that too um, so it's important that we as researchers I think try to do that but it is very difficult you can't quantify it you can't get a mean score you know what I mean yeah. it's um. you just have to try and write as best as you can to to get that information down, but it's definitely a challenge, Rob, yeah. Yeah,
0: So, so will you be including that in your thesis? You know, like stuff about you drove here, rang this person, they didn't answer, rang them again, they didn't answer, but I rang them a fifth time and they answered and then they agreed to meet or, you know...
1: Possibly not in that level of detail, but I suppose what I'd be trying to highlight is that there's a foundational layer to these things, you know, that you need to get things in place. So we even talk a lot about gender-specific strategies, so ways of engaging men. All of that stuff is so important as a precursor to all of of these programmes. And it's really important that we try to get that out there. And um, Noel is my co-supervisor as well so he's been great in, in um, trying to capture that too and so implementation science again is just a way you look at you can kind of apply a framework and we look at it on a much, a much broader kind of ecological model so it's not just what happened at the individual level it's all the things that are interplaying in the wider system so the policies the funding the partners the the people who have the capacity to deliver these things it's mm. trying to capture all of that so it's very messy Yeah, it's very complex Um. And I'm not sure how I'm going to get it all on paper yet, but that's the plan.
0: I'm thinking of, uh, there's a book I read years ago, was a dark, Gently's Holistic Detective Agency? I think it's going to be Ashley McGrath's Holistic Thesis. <laughs> <laughs> data collection or something yeah. like that. Um, Orla, would you would you recognise that? I mean, you mentioned about trying to deal with small businesses who you know maybe are very busy or there's one person. Would you recognise something similar to what Ashleen has described there? I
3: think so, yeah. Um, the, one of the things that my supervisors told me at the start was to write a reflective journal. And I was like, oh yeah, cool, I'll write a reflective journal. But now that I did, once a week, so I literally have this little pink journal up in the office, and once a week I'll jot down some notes, or after an interview I jot down some notes. And now that I read back over three or four years of notes, I'm like, oh, this is so valuable because I know what I was feeling in the moment. I know what I was thinking in the moment. I know kind of like those intricacies of the conversations that I was having. I'm, um, I'm a very visual person. So I have dyslexia. I'm not very good. At, well, I'm good at words, but like <laughs> I'm mm. not the best of it. So I'm a really visual learner. So I analyze my entire theses on paper. So if you go up to my office at the moment, there's a roll of wallpaper (laughs) with literally charts of what I was doing that day, charts of who I was talking to, charts of the process. So I talked to John today. I talked to Mary this day. Mary said this, that linked to John. So it's literally all visual. So I think there is ways and means of like getting that connection and getting that kind of intangible stuff down. It's just about thinking beyond the kind of traditional, I have to write it down. Reflection journals, visualisations, they're all brilliant tactics, 100%. Yeah,
0: so I'm, I'm getting visions of like a, a crime movie and, and a map and a serial killer. 100%. Kind of with this, yeah, is this, okay so you're, you're a detective?
3: Yeah, people yeah. come into my office and they're like, if anyone woke up the stairs, literally it's laid out on the floor and people are like, why do you have wallpaper <laughs> on the floor? And I'm like, no, that's my thesis. <laughs> yeah.
0: There's a link back to you said you wanted to be in the guards as well, so. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I
3: am mean, solving
0: crimes. <laughs> um, right, okay, my next question is is about what you think are the biggest barriers facing female researchers and what you have encountered. And so look, Orla, we've just been speaking to you, so we go back to you again, if that's OK. What, what do you think are the biggest barriers facing female researchers? What are, what are the biggest barriers that you've experienced?
3: Oh, that's a good question. Well, firstly, funding. <laughs> Mm-hmm. I suppose I came in as an unfunded student I funded myself for the first two years I, um, I worked in merchandising for some of the big supermarkets around um, Waterford and South East and just trying to find funding but I suppose that's not just a female researcher thing that's kind of a, a, across the board particularly in certain disciplines it's harder um, but in terms of like discipline specific so looking at business specific I suppose it's been taken seriously. <laughs> Right. If you think about your, sometimes if you're interviewing people in the C-suite or you're interviewing individuals that kind of have this expectation of what a researcher is, or have this expectation of what a business person is, they might not think it's a young girl coming in and asking questions about big topics. Yeah. So I've, I've, I've had experiences where I've gone and talked to people and they're like, oh, like they wouldn't treat you the same as you, they, they treat your male counterpart in that sense. So you just have to hold your ground and, and, and learn to like show your abilities yeah. through your work. So I think yeah,
0: (laughs) but that—that's again another potential intangible aspect of this that that has not been captured.
3: Yeah, one hundred percent, definitely. It's in my reflective journal somewhere.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Um, Madhuri, is—is what do you find are the biggest barriers? facing female researchers
2: i think we need to speak up sometimes we have that in our mind but we won't speak up and discuss with our family but if we really want to be in research career or if we really want to continue our education we need to speak up and our, definitely our family will support us if we convey how important that is to us and also sometimes we might be thinking like we have kids can we manage kids and research sometimes we'll have a long days and all but i think both men and women are equally responsible to take care of the kids and also we have a support system in place. For example, we have Waterford Women Community where we have affordable childcare there and we also have different fundings to apply. So, whether it's men or women, if you really want to be in research field, I think you just need to move forward utilizing the support system you have. We have research support unit. We have different fundings from IRC and we have WIT funding. And you can also speak to your lecturers who are in who are have who have connections with research as well. So I I think everyone is so helpful and supportive here.
0: Yeah, but I mean, OK, I'm only mentioning because you you brought up that you have have a small daughter. I mean, childcare must be a massive issue that it disproportionately affects female researchers.
2: Yeah, it's expensive, but uh, fortunately, I have a very helpful and supportive people around me. Even my daughter's friends, parents offered help for me. Like uh, they, they wanted to mind my daughter as well, like with a very reasonable uh, uh, finance and all. So I think we just need to reach out. That's all. Mm, yeah, yeah,
0: yeah. And are there any any suggestions you might have for how things could potentially be better?
2: uh actually and unless until one of my friend told there is a waterford women community i don't know that they will offer affordable child care facilities based on the income we get so i think we just need to find out mm. the supports we have so a lot of people don't know what supports we have i think we just need to reach out and find out and utilize those yeah because
0: yeah. i mean I, like, I have children and the, particularly when they were small, in, in, in kind of crash, they're all in school now. But I mean, it wasn't it wasn't like having a second mortgage. It was like having a third mortgage. We spent more on childcare than we did on our on our, our mortgage of our house. It yeah. was it was very significant, and particularly when my wife came back from maternity leave. She, okay, look, she was essentially working. We were working to pay childcare, yeah. but the, and that that is very it was very difficult for a number of years. It's Uh, very
2: difficult and we couldn't save any money because half of it goes to childcare. mm. But I think once we finish our PhD, there is a bright future out there. So I think we just need to manage. Yeah.
0: yeah. Ashleen, same kind of question to you. What do you think are the biggest barriers facing female researchers? What have been the biggest barriers that you've encountered?
1: Uh, Well, I think, you know, it's definitely complex. There's lots of, you know, social constructs that are still out there, you know, assumptions that are made or stereotypes. And I suppose as a female researcher in a predominantly male environment, there was, you know, some challenges with that, but, you know, nothing that you couldn't overcome. I suppose in, in general for females, it's um, it was as you said, Rob, I mean, I, w- I became a single mom in my last year of college and right. I thought, Jesus, am I crazy to go and do this PhD? Because obviously finances is a huge consideration. How are you going to live, you know? And all those things. And um, then there's a guilt. There's a guilt as a mom as well. You know, when you're trying to um, pour yourself into this work and, yeah. you know, you have this little cute little child looking up at you and wanting you to spend all their time. Um, and COVID was very challenging. Um, so that's definitely. And then as a woman as well, I, I had this conversation with some, and I think it's generally for women that are maybe aspirational in any sense, you know, your biological clock and all that to you. Like, you have to make sacrifices. Do you want to have more children? Is it something that's feasible? You know, how old are you going to be by the time you establish yourself in your career? Is it okay? Is it socially acceptable then for you to go ahead and, you know, get pregnant and things like that? It's not something I'm planning, but I did have to make those kind of considerations. So that's definitely something. And I think women still very much have multiple roles that we need to contend with too. So, you know, coming home and facing like a crazy house and all of those things as well as trying to do your research. I know that a lot of people work very well in the evening, but for me personally, I am just a zombie. My brain is mushy bees at that stage of the day. So there's a lot, there's a lot of juggling, you know, definitely, definitely a thing that. uh, What I would say as well, and I think it's really important to mention this is strong women should empower women. It's not that it can't be done. It's just that you need to have a good role model as well. And I do remember and I'll even use this example, Neve Murphy, uh, when I started my undergrad, I didn't even really know what a PhD was, to be honest. I was coming from I wasn't coming from a background of people that had a lot of college education either. And I remember just thinking she is definitely someone that I would look up to, you know, and she was great. She was a great advocate and she really empowered me. And I think if you can get somebody that will empower you, then you you're really you. it opens your mind to your capabilities as a woman and a researcher and all of
0: those things as well. Yeah. Um, whilst Ashley was talking there, I could see Orla and Maturi nodding uh, in, in agreement. So, I mean, was there anything there that particularly echoed with either of you, Maturi?
2: Yeah, actually my supervisor Larry FitzHenry, he got three kids when he's doing his PhD and he always always motivates me and he also gives advice how to manage personal and work life balance. I think we really as Aishling said, we really need to have a role model which gives us more confidence and motivation like to manage both. Yeah. yeah.
0: And Orla, would you agree?
3: I think in terms of like the role model thing that Ashley was talking about there, we need to see more women in senior level in academia. Yeah. So if you look at the research, um, literally when it starts to go to professor level, senior lecture, the levels of women start to drop off and it seems to be a lot of males in like the c suite version of academia, which is like higher level roles, like presidents of colleges and um, even professor roles, if you think about it. Um, So I think... When we see that as individuals, when we see that as young girls in undergraduate, we see a professor as a female, it's giving us that educational role model like yeah. I only came to second I only came to college itself because I had a really good female role model in secondary school. so I think as we continue on that level, we should continue to have those role models that are encouraging us to like reach as high as we can. Can go like in, in education
0: and um, you mentioned the term c-suite and you use it already i don't know what that means what, what does it mean <laughs> so,
3: um the c-suite are people that are individuals in a business that have a c a title that starts with c oh
0: so like ceo c- c- ceo ceo, okay. CEO okay. Okay. Yeah. yeah okay 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 very good thank you go. every day is a school day exactly. thank you <laughs>
3: <laughs> always be learning <laughs> yeah
0: yeah um okay the final question and I, I give it to each of you is what would be your one bit of advice for somebody who's thinking about getting into research. Whoever wants to take a first go for it.
1: I would say, um, you know, as a, like the role model thing is really important, but also you can be your own champion too. Um, it's a challenging road, but you need to kind of catch that imposter syndrome and just tell it where to go. Like you're going to have it, figure till you make it. You know, believe in yourself. It's so rewarding. It's, it's a crazy ride, but you know, you'll get there. Like, I, I just think if you really want it, go for it and you'll figure out the rest as, as you go. Ask for forgiveness later is what I'd say, you know.
0: Maduri. Yeah, <laughs> Brilliant.
2: yeah uh, I agree with eshling as well. When I joined my PhD, I used to miss my daughter a lot because she's just eight, nine months like that. And I used to struggle, the stress in PhD, ups and downs, experiments not working. But then I slowly got used to it. Like, working under stress. If experiment doesn't work, it's OK, I'll try it again. I'll figure out things. So I think if you really want to do, you can manage it.
0: Yeah. yeah. And Orla, your bit of advice for aspiring researchers or maybe somebody who hasn't even thought about it.
3: I think be curious. I grew up as someone that had my heads in the books. So I would go to the library every single Friday and just buy, like bring home like 10, 15 books. And I think that inspired that kind of interest in learning in me. Um. So even now I'm like, I'll ask the ladies, oh, what are you doing in research? Tell me all about your research. Like, I'm constantly curious and ask for help. Like, there's so much support here and with there's so much support in our little research community. If you're having trouble with a specific element of your research, if you're having uh, trouble personally, if you're having trouble like financially, that kind of thing. Ask for help because there's so many people that have been there, done that there's so many people in your networks like create a good network around you like we have the research postgrad forum here in WIT which is like a group of representatives from each of the um, the schools and and we try and like um, represent the different schools and we try and have meetups when we possibly can and our office has like a shared group chat and just even just having those things that you mentioned previously like going for coffee mm-hmm. ask for help network get yourself like into that little community be part of the research community and, and it really 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 helps
0: Okay, well, I do actually have one last question, but it's really just a kind of a shout out. Um, if somebody wanted to find out more about your your work, your research, what's the best place to go? So, Orla, search research
3: Um I'm on Twitter, so I'm Orla Nihay, so it's O R L A N I H A O D H A on Twitter, and um, yeah, that's where I'm at.
2: <laughs> Brilliant, uh, Maduri. Yeah, uh, my Twitter handle is Madhuri Krishna. So, And and I'm happy to say that we have a research group, like group of researchers working on drug delivery technologies. And we are equal, like five of female researchers and five of male researchers. So there's a good general balance. And I'm happy to see more researchers in science. Uh, it, things are improving, actually. Wonderful. So, yeah, I'm happy to share that.
0: Brilliant. And Ashley. I'm trying
2: to remember
0: my Twitter. handle. <laughs> it doesn't have to be Twitter. It can be um, anything.
1: <laughs> yeah, you can email me even ie. so it's A-I-S-L-I-N-G. And I would just like to say, you know, if anyone is even wanting to know, not even specifically about my research or just wants to kind of you know, use me as a sounding board to see maybe what's the process like. Absolutely. I'd love to be able to, um, you know, be there to support other people because I've had great support myself. So I'd be happy to do that if anyone has any questions wonderful
0: well Ashley McGrath Madhuri Dandamundi and Orla Hayes thank you very much for speaking with me today it's been very insightful and uh, touch wood, the three of you will be uh, Dr. Ashley and Dr. Orla and Dr. Madhuri very very soon cheers
3: great thank you. thank you so much
0: thank you for listening to the 9 Plus Podcast we can see the audience growing as each episode is released. If you enjoyed what you heard or you found it some way interesting, please consider leaving us a kind review on the podcast app you use. You can stay up to date with news of the podcast on Twitter at 9pluspodcast. That's digit 9 P-L-U-S podcast. And we'll be back with another episode next week.